and if that's true that's really huge because that's something we all need to be very very serious about and if we can contribute towards national security that gets me excited at least to jump and want to help there's always a fresh perspective that outsiders bring to the table my real hope is that we as a bunch of outsiders are able to make enough dent to sort of intentionally disrupt this ecosystem Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanspert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today, Luke will be talking with Ms. Shubi Mishra, CEO of RAFT, a data-intensive digital consultancy. She'll be discussing wicked problems in national security, finding creative mission-focused solutions, and equipping the DOD with sustainable emerging technology. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thank you for coming on, Shuby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell our audience a little bit about your background, why you founded Raft, and what are you and really Raft working on currently? Yeah, I will try to keep this short. (laughs) I can go deep. So my background, I am a data scientist and a lawyer by training. I came to the country, immigrated to the country 10 years ago almost almost a decade ago, um, with a desire and a passion to solve cancer, um, which seemed to be a very hard problem from the vantage point I had at the time. And it it's runs in the family. So I was very curious to explore that. I did my graduate degree, started working with NIH, um, got interested in policy side of things, uh, wanted to pursue master's in health law. They told me, GW told me, you can't, you need a JD. Um, so I said, fine, I'll get a JD, ended up going to part-time law school. Um, and during that journey, crossed several paths. GovCon was one of it. And I, you know, being part of NIH, um, GovCon was not necessarily that um, far from what I was working in the parameters I was working at at the time. And um, things led to another. I I had to make a decision summer of 2017, whether what I wanted to do, I had just given birth to my um, baby daughter and something about her made me want to be brave. And so I, I knew there was a gap between this, uh, what people promise versus deliver. And I figured how hard can it be to fill that cap um, and as while solving hard problems. And um, I decided to sort of jump in and found a draft late 2017. 17. During the time I had been, you know, been part of NIH's journey, um, data science journey. Um, And since then, we have been um, focused on just that, finding the hard problems and then figuring out um, how to solve that with the tribe of great, great people. And Raft now has, um, Raft has gone through its evolution over the period of three years. And what we are working, one of the things we are uh, working on and super proud of is um, we're building a, a data fabric through our cyber phase three with the Air Force 
chief architect's office and um, the chief um, data office, which is, um, and data fabric is a layer or think of a mesh on top of the existing data lakes to enable, um, to reduce data silos and um, the different workaround that happened to communicate between the data silos and hence enable faster decision-making for the warfighter or, or operational users as they may need it. So that's a little bit about what um, my background, what I founded and what Raft is currently working on and what gets us super excited. I love that. And I really love your origin story because I think that's so important to when we start thinking about innovation. You came here, you saw a problem and you really attacked it um, in a way that was really again, dedicated to making things so much better for the people of this country. So, you know, when we talk a lot about um, technology, it can start to sound uh, overly scientific, which sounds bad, uh, but uh, also can be kind of surgical and sterile. What do you mean when you're when you talk about using human centered design? Yeah, I have a very simple definition of it. And it's basically to be aware of your, who you're building for and continuously experiment and experiment and validate and you know sort of have that continuous feedback loop to include the different feedback points that you may need to build quicker and better and design it for the human that will be using the technologies that you're building. Now, I love that definition, and especially when we think about it in the sense from the Army perspective, because uh, we talk about the soldier first. And so the soldier is a human and, and centering around that and creating that feedback loop is extremely important. You're not just building technologies for their own sake or, or in a silo. And, you know, really with talking about humans, you've talked before about representing diversity, both the demographic and cognitive diversity, uh, as well as equity in massive data sets that AI and ML applications are trained on and fed. And so how do you do that when the data sets are sometimes considered completed or you're using historical data sets? With that and, and you all working in GovTech, how can the Department of Defense then introduce that kind of diversity and equity into data used when a lot of times the problem sets they're looking at or we're looking at uh, are focused on warfare where you really don't have kind of the repetition or iterations that you see in data uh, for things like driving or business transactions that happen like millions of times every day? Yeah, um, so there's sort of the two parts to this question. Um, I'm going to piece it up a little bit. So the first part, let's talk about equity in historical data sets. In my opinion, there are three prongs to this. First of all, do the data sets that exist or are being used, uh, you know, what are those data sets um, that are being used? Um, and the second is, um, how are we measuring success or what, what is our definition of success to make to call the algorithm successful. And the third piece is, how do you use the feedback loop to improve um, what your outcome is becoming or how you know you're being successful? So really starting with the question of um, historical data where it is a complete data set, um, beginning to think about, is it really a complete data set? Are there other data sets that may exist and may not have been included because of selection bias? And if so, then we need to go back and include them. But for, let's say in some cases, they're not because we haven't collected that data um, for one reason or the other. And what you have in front of you is a complete data set. 
um, then, then, then it sort of becomes the next step becomes, hey, how do we, how are we defining how the success is measured um, for the data that this is being used for? Is the algorithm that we are building based on this historical data just confirming the outcome we want to seek? Uh, or is algorithm just an opinionated code? Or has it been designed not to pattern match? And more often than not, algorithms answer mostly did the structure in the past lead to the measured outcome? And so, and sort of following that um, pod a little bit, for example, take our case using historical data, RAF was not meant to be successful. Um, we don't have any attributes of success that success would look like in a defense tech company. Um, so, in this case, the data is complete and the, the data sets doesn't necessarily exist or may have been not included. Um, but more significantly, the way success is defined on what the algorithm would use to consider something successful would result in a biased prediction, which is accurate if you look at the data, complete set of data being used, but not necessarily fair or equitable. And until you know, we do the due diligence of making sure the, the audits and making sure that it is really the algorithms are being used not to confirm the bias that exists, but they're being used to ask the question of, hey, does this present a different picture than we were not thinking about? Um, and that's that something we see a lot when we deal with big data because there are humans at the other end designing um, based on the complete data sets. And so usually we have some, for lack for a better word, agenda behind why we want it a certain way. And hence either you know using double-blinded studies or using external audit measures to make sure um, not only all the right kind of data sets is used, but also the feedback loop to improve that algorithm is used correctly, but also how we define the measure of success is very helpful and significant. I was just going to say, I think that's an amazing point and, and well uh, said perspective because in the book Prediction Machines, uh, something the authors talked about was uh, AI and ML applications that uh, were being used in the tech sector to try and recruit and um, and hire people within the tech sector. And while the idea was that AI ML would be unbiased um, and, and wouldn't have some inherent biases within uh, hiring programs, really, it just continued to do that it was even more uh, selective in that confirmation bias because they were taking a uh, community that was already widely uh, dominated by white males. And so the program thought that white males then uh, were really the outcome that they were looking for. So I just want to say, I think you made an amazing point there. Yeah, exactly that. And just to even further that, right? I mean, your measure of success in that case is people who are in the current company or who stay for a longer time, let's say in the example you just gave. So that's your measure of success. And those people um, and the, when the, uh, the feedback loop happens, then you end up selecting just the same kind of people 
Um, and it's, it's, you know, your opinion is almost the people designing this, their opinion is hidden as code and it ends up becoming like not necessarily, hey, which attributes should we really be looking at? Um, when we de de define this measure of success, maybe it is not the people who stay five years in a company. Maybe it is the people um, who have, you know, run the extra mile, run faster, whatever you define that at. But I think that the how you measure the outcome and what that outcome is needs to be very thoughtfully thought through for things that make a larger impact uh, on the society and the programs we are working on. And sort of also to go back to your second part of the question about the data that exists that's focused on warfare and it may not be, you know, necessarily have much repetitions and iterations of, iterations of the data. Um, and to that note, you know, I don't think um, it's about the size or the volume of the data. It's that sometimes we are limited by the data we have, but we need to be very cautious about what outcome we are measuring. And are we using the algorithms to pattern match or are we enabling different values to be introduced so we can have a fair non-biased decision and not just doing a repeat? So if you look at the war data, do you want the same outcomes and are you looking for the confirmation bias or are you looking for outliers and define the success different way? So um, it's it's not necessarily the size, it's, it's, it's like looking at all the three things um, together to make data more equitable, not necessarily just accurate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that makes a lot more sense um, when you think about that, because I do think we get obsessed with the, as you said, the size of the data. Um, and, and when really a lot of times it can be the quality, the representation, the equity, uh, all of that. And, you know, you've said before that there really is no silver bullet in fixing defense acquisition, and and I violently agree with you. Uh, but why would you say that? And what is the alternative? How does that differ from the value of death that tech companies in the private sector face? I don't think there are ever any silver bullets to life. Um, but um, and hence uh, my point about there's not necessarily silver bullets in defense acquisition either. Um, and. And hugely because there just doesn't exist a simple magical solution to solving a problem, uh, which you know is right now being faced by several people within the de uh, defense tech industry. Um, and I, what I sort of meant also is like instead of having this one magical approach that somehow it's going to cure everything else, it's about using a ton of lead bullets to survive the defense acquisition value of that. Um, and that's raft. Uh, you know, we have attempted and are very, very close to um, uh, getting on the other side of it um, through navigating our ways through Cyber 1, the Cyber Phase 2 process, and then finally now with the Cyber Phase 3, and really thinking about what is outside the box, the creativity of what is the possible, being resources, resourceful, not relying on resources that much, or the lack of um, being <laughs> grateful for having lack of resources and choosing um, carefully, you know, what lead bullets you would use to incrementally, and I do on this end, I'm doing lead bullets in quotes, <laughs> um, but to incrementally um, disrupt and pay it forward, right? So yeah, what we have done, and I can talk to you about my, our experiences, like we have gotten to the MVP as fast as possible and not necessarily waited on the milestone month target list. We had born intentionally, if it didn't make sense, we pivoted. Um, we have tracked our funding very closely on how we are burning. We have knocked on so many doors 
um, to validate our use case, to validate, hey, what else can we learn? Um, so we are not building in our silos to get out there and got shot down several times, but that's okay. Um, to talk to, you know, Af- things like Afrofact Ventures, which, and they are doing a great job putting and educating um, the ecosystem about the TACFI, StratFi. Um, we talk to a lot of defense, um, um, you know, not only operators, but other companies. Um, deaf chapters have been great for that. Um, and so it's like several things you got to try and, and, you know, tailor your approach to what makes sense. Um, but there's not, um, unfortunately, one thing that will solve the problem. And it's not necessarily about somehow government finding a pathway that is simpler, because as humans, we will find a way to even hack that. So um, I don't think that there's, per, personally, I don't think there's a one pathway answer. And then when it comes to sort of value of that um, differing from the private sector, I would say they have their own different value of debt, right? If they raise a, a dilution round or if they their funding runs out before they can really hit and scale or there's not a product market fit here. We have seen several, there's been several instances in the past where it has just not made sense. And so again, the ones that have survived and come on the other end, including um, SpaceX, um, which failed five times and barely had the funding left, um, but had to figure out and be resourceful. So it's not necessarily limited to a sector or type. It's just widely a prevalent thing that just needs to be solved through multiple ways of creative out-of-the-box thinking and being resourceful. I think that's such a great point, Shubi, because uh, one of the things I really latched on to what, what you said kind of in the public space and, and on LinkedIn and places like that um, is the idea that there is no silver bullet. And so we have to stop necessarily just bemoaning the fact that acquisition is so hard um, and and looking for some entirely new system or, or architecture to do that. Uh, but we just need to start being able to tackle it with those lead bullets and start getting things done. So I I think that's just a phenomenal point. Um, When you're looking at these things and and you're dealing with these, how do we go about solving wicked problems? Like how can you do that in an organization that's as large as a DOD uh, or the whole federal government, which really in terms of people and funding and organizations is just a huge behemoth. I would shift left and ask what is a wicked problem and how do you define it? Because I bet you everyone's definition would be different. But let's say, you know, it's, it is the hardest sort of problems out there or that have a meaningful impact. Um, it, it works both ways. I feel like the, to my surprise, um, the uh, DOD has been great and creating these um, ventures programs like Afrox Ventures, Cipsys Work Afworks, um, the Cyber Sitters program, even TTS, GSA's um, Technology Transformation Service, 10X, um, has some good ideas where they highlight or ask you to submit, crowdsource some of the ideas uh, or crowdsource some of the hard problems they're seeing, and then um, sometimes ask you to help solve them or figure out ways to uh, get uh, ideas on or a path to solving those problems. Yeah, we can learn and improve on how those that's being solved and that it can be a better implementation. That's always been, that's been the case. Um, but I've seen that there's a lot more um, conversation to how we can do that. Um, then the other way is always, you know, also by talking to a lot of users. 
or just uh, people with problems. So one thing at Wrapped we understood super early on was we just cannot build in our silo. And the silo also includes just not talking to the humans we are designing for, but also sort of extending that user base. So even when we are, you know, we are submitting an open topic uh, or a proposal to an open topic, or we are building uh, on a cyber uh, program, we talk, we go outside the immediate circle we are solving for to get more validation so that we are to get more feedback because that's the whole point of our cyber is to um, use this one thing to get more people excited about it and see if it also can uh, solve their problems. We are not reinventing the wheel every single time. And so I feel like it's a lot of things, but it again comes down to, and this is again, something we have learned the super hard way. Um, And for me, it has been a very good learning lesson because I used to be a data scientist in a lab doing my thing. And now I'm on the other side talking to a lot of people and getting excited about the hard problems. And it is um, the more we talk, the more challenges we learn and the more we can help. Um, So my recommendation would be not only through increasing these partnerships and, you know, having more of these sessions and AMAs and things like that, but then also um, for the vendors to uh, reach out from from their immediate circle and ask questions that will be helpful for them later down the line. I think those are excellent points and a really good segue to my next question. Um, Really, you founded Raft as a GovTech company and you've talked about the importance of getting tech companies in the private sector to work with the federal government and DOD. And why why is that important to you? And do you think there's an appetite for that in the tech industry? And then how can companies who really don't have that in their portfolio or wheelhouse start to work with and, and help the DOD? Yeah, so I formed this opinion that um, it is really important of getting tech companies in the private sector to work with the federal government and specifically in the uh, realm of national security through becoming more aware and being informed about things that were happening around us. And it was, and I am truly an outsider and I was not in part of this space, but as I got more and more, not only just talking to people, the book Kill Chain that Christian Bros. Um, wrote that was very helpful in um, illuminating and bringing a lot of perspective on things that were happening. And since then have, you know, been exploring several, um, have been learning more about the ecosystem, let's just say that, but not nearly as, you know, folks like you who have lived through it would be. But prior to that, um, my opinion was very biased from an outsider perspective. I had a data bias, if you want to call it, uh, of neglecting uh, and not taking the stuff that was not relevant into account in making that decision. And, but as I started to learn more, read more, talk to the the people, I realized how much of tech war is in front of us. And I don't know where I read um, recently somewhere that the Ukraine war could, you know, is turning out to be very different from what it had been anticipated because of non-tech traditional companies like Andrew that could have been potentially being used. And and if that's true, that's really huge because that's something we all need to be very, very serious about. And if we can contribute towards national security, that gets me excited at least to jump in, jump and want to help. To your question about sort of the appetite um, of the private sector, I think um, I think so. Um, so we recruit heavily from the private sector and we have found that 
you know, sometimes people are not aware of things that are happening and rather they just read the headlines. And when we start that conversation and we sort of tell them, you know, paint the picture and sort of provide more data points and provide a little bit more light into it, it changes their mind and they, they are excited about the impact they can make through the problems they end up solving with us. Um, so I feel very, I, I, I'm a big believer of and a big proponent of getting outsiders involved into the GovTech industry. Um, and I think um, there are several ways to get started. Like I named a couple through Afrospace for SimperSitters, but there are also, you know, VC funds that are specifically focused on the capability building within the defense tech. And, and I feel like um, DOD in the past couple of years have really opened their doors into where people can just knock and ask and reach out questions. And it's not, it's not necessarily looked at, oh, wait, what do you want from me? I think it, it's, 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 the narrative has shipped uh, upon that. And it's more like, all right, let's figure out how you can help me. And if there's a path ahead. And I see a lot of partnerships um, being formed that way, which is super exciting to see. No, I love that. And I, I think there is, you know, from our perspective, that growing appetite and a lot of tech companies uh, that we've talked to, that we've seen come through uh, Army Applications Lab or Softworks or Affworks or any of those uh, are, are very interested in being a part of this solution. Uh, so I, I agree and I, I appreciate the insights on that. You kind of talked about a little bit of this with your origin story of, of coming um, and, and starting Raft and everything else. But you came into government and defense tech as an outsider to those sectors. Uh, and I'm, I'm familiar with that as coming to the Army, uh, coming from the Navy uh, as really an outsider and, and gave a, a TEDx talk on the power of outsiders. But what was that experience like for you? And what kind of power or advantage was there in coming in as an outsider? Um, the experience was very, very tough. Not going to not going to sugarcoat that. Um, we just got over our trial of sorrow, um, just made it over the threshold. And it's been a very long sort of journey to get where we are at right now. We will finish this year, you know, very strong, just um, under 150 people. And we are very excited about it. But it was very, very long journey. Um, but the other part of this is also, I still struggle with acronyms. And I don't understand a lot of the way a hierarchy sometimes work or why that's relevant. Um, and so I have to constantly remind myself of sort of, you know, the expertise we and Raft bring and not feel weirded about um, the limited knowledge of, of the, you know, sometimes we would have of the space, mission space. And that is something um, we partner with the right kind of people on so that um, we can figure out a solution together. And that's always been hard and challenging for me because as a data scientist, as a SME, I know it, it has been default to knowing and going deep um, versus the now it's like, you know the technology, but you how do you learn very quick, very fast on how this technology can make an impact on the mission space? And so that's that's been very interesting as a journey. And I feel like the power has been about not taking no as an answer, and being very resourceful because the resources are never enough and think outside the box, you know, and being curious and asking the questions which you wouldn't ha usually ask because you've been in the space and you sort of know and you, you've been told no several times. But that's, there's always a fresh perspective that outsiders bring to the table. 
I mean, it took Netflix as a tech company to disrupt Hollywood. And my real hope is that, you know, we as a bunch of outsiders um, are able to, you know, make enough dent to sort of intentionally disrupt this ecosystem. And I think we are very close. It'll just take continuous repetitions of um, making a a big change. Those are fantastic insights because I think as coming in as those outsiders, you don't know all the acronyms and you're trying to, you know, catch up and and they have very long and um, established kind of histories, cultures, heritages. Uh, but those those can get in the way of thinking about things, as you said, outside the box, thinking about these things differently um, because you accept that that's the way it operates day to day. And I've known this my whole career, whether I'm in Army, Air Force, Navy, wherever. And I think as coming in an outsider, you know, ask, having that intellectual curiosity to ask, why is it done this way? Or what are you really trying to do? Um, I think adds so much to the to the equation um so really really appreciate that from your perspective from coming into this what do you think the army and really the larger dod are not thinking about enough i think we are still in a phase of operating from fear and and not really flipping that model about what would happen if or um how do we attack this problem if they were not necessarily these things associated with it. And these things can be anything. And, and truly partnering and figuring out, um, not only partnering within the ecosystem, but partnering with vendors. I, I feel like these are very high level uh, perspectives, but I think that's where the problem lies. And there's where's, where's a lot of opportunity for growth because tech is going to be used to solve these things. Tech is not the problem. It's like, how do you organizationally and through people figure out more of a reverse in thinking where it's like doing pre-mortems before something is executed and understanding sort of the risk reward failure and, you know, being quick and agile um, and just shutting something when it doesn't work. So all of these things, I think it's a big organizational change that's needed, a big behavioral change that's needed. And we really need to think a little bit outside the box. I think we are there where we talk a lot about general idea, big picture buzzwords, and but then the you know the do the do is the hard part, and I think we have a little bit more ways to go before we start measuring if the do the do is happening and the impact on it, and how quick can you make those jumping points and decisions as a tech company, right? So we what go through an organizational change every six months, if not sooner, six to eight months, I would say, as we scale and grow. And I feel like with new programs and new initiatives that are created, uh, sometimes DOD does that, but I wonder if that organizational change is on the line of where it should be broken out or versus what someone thinks should be the way it should be done. And I think not being curious enough and asking the question always leaves a huge opportunity for improvement. No, I love that. And uh, I think that that kind of flipping um, the idea of instead of going fear-based to really initiative-based uh, is extremely important. I think I think this whole conversation has just been so amazing and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I'm going to pivot to our uh, rapid-fire questions that we say, uh, which kind of helps us get to know our guests a little bit better. Uh, so the first question is, what technology 
or trend keeps you up at night? So this may sound super weird, um, but it's funny. Uh, I, you know, it's I, I, even though I'm a tech, um, a leader tech company, um, I, it's the tech trend is very interesting. Um, so for me, I would rather answer that um, the, re- the where I'm focusing a lot of my time and I've been reading a lot about is the big data problems, is the noise versus the bias that you see seep in the data, um, the the use of AI for making the impact it needs to make and not necessarily for confirmation bias um, and being very careful of that. All these things I think everybody's talking about, but very few of us are asking the right questions um, to enable the right decisions down the line to happen. And so from noise to to big data, to to bias, um, to the use of AI in the right way, all of them sort of do sometimes keep me up at night. I think that's fair. You see AI ML applications being um, tested, you know, experimented and then fielded a lot of times without even necessarily asking these questions. Um, in especially within the tech sector, uh, the the push is to get it out there as quickly as possible, um, and the assumption that okay it works uh, as we see it, but not asking those critical questions could lead to some really big problems uh, as you can't really put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. Um, what is something about you that you're willing to share on air that most <laughs> people might not know about you? Hmm. Well, um, a lot of people don't know about me that I'm fascinated by neuroscience. I'm fascinated by neurochemical pathways, specifically dopamine. Um, I love to read about behavior, um, human behavior, human psychology. Um, I would include stoicism as a part of it, as a philosophy, um, and, and just how the brain works and how it operates in times of stress, in times of happiness in terms of what it what leads to forming habits and how how your neurosignaling pathways lead to the decisions you end up taking one way or the other. I love that. And uh, that's that's a pretty good one. As uh, we've we've talked about before uh, with Dr. Alexander Kopp, the chief scientist from Army Research Lab, you know, sometimes a tendency uh, to hold machines to higher standards than humans uh, in that we, we tend to think that we uh, make decisions as these independent thinkers uh, and don't realize uh, the subconscious or cognitive decision-making that happens without us even realizing it. So I think that's really interesting. Uh, and I'm glad you're interested in it for the work that you do. Um, and, and then this one we always ask because it helps us, again, learn more about who our guest is as a person as well. Uh, but it's usually said as our hardest question, what's your favorite movie? Oh, gosh. Um, so here's the thing. I'll give you two, okay? Um, the most recent one is Don't Look Up. I was, I'm just fascinated by that movie. And uh, that came out on Netflix, I think a few months, maybe a year ago, I don't know. Um, but my all time favorite is Shawshank Redemption. Um, something magical about that movie. Well, I, I appreciate it. I uh, watched Don't Look Up a couple months back uh, and was thoroughly impressed and horrified at the same time. Uh, so great, great movie and great choices. Uh, and again, I really just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And where can people follow you at? So I'm available. I, I, uh, I'm on social media on LinkedIn. Um, um, you'll find you can look for Shubi Mishra Raf, you'll find me. I am also have a Twitter 
handle, WhatsApp Shubs, and then you can always email me, but those are the best two ways to get in touch. I love that Twitter handle. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much again, Shubi, for coming on. And uh, we just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. It's been a pleasure. And thanks again for the very thoughtful questions. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Shubi Mishra, CEO of Raft. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.